And let's open our Bibles this morning to Exodus 13. If you are using a Bible that's there in front of you, this is on page 67 of the Red Pew Bible. The book of Exodus is the story of God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. It's, it's as one commentator describes, the gospel of the Old Testament. It's the good news that God hears his people, he rescues them from sin, he provides sacrifice for their sins. In Exodus 13, when the people come out of Egypt, God gives them reminders through the dedication of the firstborn, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that their rescue was entirely the work of God and his grace, a picture that, that they are completely dependent upon him. And now we come to this, this famous moment immortalized in, in story, song on, on the big screen of, of the Israelites being pursued by the armies of Pharaoh and yet crossing in safety through the Red Sea. So I'm going to read from Exodus 13, verse 17, through the end of that chapter and the next. This is Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in the front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are encamped by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the chariots of Egypt and with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. 
Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea and a strong east wind, with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the seas so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had been following the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through, on, went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Let's pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the clarity with which your word speaks of your great power, the, the certainty which it gives us that we can have hope in your work, in the salvation that you promise to us. So Lord, give us hearts that are attuned to your truth. Let us be willing to listen to this gospel, this good news, that you are the God who saves. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Muhammad Ali dubbed his 1974 heavyweight championship the Rumble in the Jungle because of its location in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. But it was the younger, stronger George Foreman who was heavily favored. Foreman came into this bout as the undefeated and undisputed heavyweight champion. But Ali, too, had been a champion, he, of course, considered himself the greatest of all time, and he made sure that everyone before, during, and after the match heard that assessment. While Ali used a variety of techniques in this closely fought match, 
His surprising win over Foreman is remembered for the strategy Ali termed rope-a-dope. Because of Foreman's hard-hitting style, Ali allowed himself to be pushed up against the ropes, and, and he allowed Foreman to swing away, blocking, deflecting the punches, absorbing them with his body, but, but really leaving them inconsequential. Which is easy for me to say as somebody outside the ring. I don't think any punch from either of those men I would consider inconsequential. Now, one commentator described Ali's posture in the ring as, as someone leaning so far back that it was as if he was leaning out a window trying to see what was on the roof above him. That's how far he kept himself away to protect his head, to frustrate his opponent. So the rope part of rope-a-dope is obvious. Ali is leaning so far back on the ropes that he is there, right against the ropes. But, but it means that the dope in this instance is... Well, that's his opponent. Now, it's a strategy, this rope-a-dope strategy, that didn't always work for Ali. It's something he tried in, in other fights against different kinds of fighters with a different referee in the ring because it requires the unwitting cooperation of your opponent to act as the dope, to follow your strategy and fight your way. And in this bout, the tactic worked. Ali let Foreman exhaust himself and responded throughout the fight with, with retaliatory shots uh, to, to Foreman's head. And finally, in the eighth round, Ali lands a series of devastating punches which sent uh, Foreman, this had never happened before, staggering to a knockout defeat. Now, you don't have to worry about George Foreman. He went on decades later to recover the, the heavyweight title, and he sold your mom an indoor electric grill. Now, boxing historians would point out the details in every round that, that led up to, to Ali's defeat. But Ali, in, in the immediate aftermath of the match, and in the, every time he was quoted later, he, he kept pointing to the, the strategy, this rope-a-dope strategy. He used his opponent's strength against him and lured him in close to gain the victory. In Exodus 13 and 14, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, realizes that he has lost his enslaved labor force in the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So he chases after them, only to be lured into a defeat because of his arrogance. Israel is up against the ropes with the Red Sea behind them, nowhere to go, but that's exactly where God wanted them to be because it would force Pharaoh's hand. Now, of course, to use a boxing analogy for the battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the universe, and Pharaoh, implies that, well, there should have ever been any doubt about the outcome at all. That this was a match of equals, which it never was. But the analogy, thinking of them as, well, who's going to win? Well, Pharaoh had an answer. He has an army. He has the chariots. He will win. Israel, in seeing him coming, that's exactly what they think as well. But God's victory has already been secured. In the ten plagues against Egypt, Pharaoh has been thoroughly and repeatedly defeated. But wait, he has something Israel doesn't have. He has this elite force of 
chariots. So he thinks he can still win. And yet, God's plan, even the pathway of the people out of Egypt, shows that God will gain the victory. First, as we look at, the, at their pathway out of Egypt, n- notice that, that God doesn't lead them on the direct path into the promised land. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that, that when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them straight through along the, the route, uh, uh, along the Mediterranean coast, right into the promised land. Why? Because God knows they are not ready for battle. If they face any opposition, they will turn and run. And so if they're heading toward the promised land and there's opposition in front of them, what will they do? They will turn and go back. And so God has them wander, has them turn away, not on a direct path, but onto the desert road. Even, the, even this note here that the Israelites in verse 18 are armed for battle, it, it's really just saying that they counted off by 50s and 100s, that they were numbered off like you would do with an army, except that how many of them had ever fought in a battle? How many of their grandfathers had ever fought in a battle? How many of them had ever even heard of, of an ancestor fighting in a battle? None of them. They, they, yes, they, they, go, they march out as if they are an army, but without any real experience. And then this, this meandering pathway, it, 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 we also get this note that they take the bones of Joseph with them which seems such a bizarre detail. Why why are we being told this? Well, we have to remember, who is Joseph? Joseph is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, the one to whom the promises were originally given. And what happened to Joseph? I mean, even if you've not read the story in Genesis, you've seen his amazing Technicolor dream coat, so you know what happens. He's the favored son whose brothers decide they're going to kill him, but instead of killing him at the last second, they decide, well, we can make a little money off this. Let's sell him into slavery in Egypt. But God is using their sin for his good purposes. God uses the sin of of Abraham's grandsons so that God will receive glory. Because Joseph, through the trials that he suffers in Egypt, is raised by God to a a position in which he's in second in command. So that he, given the the plan by God, is is told to to store up resources so that when when the famine comes... Well, the promise can be protected. That when the promise that had been made to Abraham looks like it is about to die out, that there would be a, an heir of Abraham who would come as a rescuer. Well, his brothers come to him in Egypt, and Joseph, by God's power, is able to save them. But Joseph, in, in his dying breath, this is the way the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, ends. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath to God. He said, surely, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. See, this is a connection back to why, why are we even in Egypt in the first place, it's to protect the promise. It's because God is a God who rescues his people. And so the New Testament tells us, this is the book of Hebrews 11, that that great chapter which describes the faith of the people of the Old Testament. We're told in Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. And so the bones are going to the promised land. Why? Because Joseph remembered the promise 
that God would take his people into the promised land. And so he made them promise, take these bones with you. Which seems like such a bizarre detail here, but it's a reminder of God's great promise. And, and think about it for, for Joseph, being, being put in Hebrews 11 is, is such a place of honor in our Bibles. But what's he remembered for? His perseverance against the, the opposition of his brothers? His faithfulness to God when thrown in prison wrongly? No, what's he remembered for? This promise in the end, take my bones with you. Because that's the point of great faith. That even at his death in a foreign land, he knows that the promises of God will not end here. And so that's what the author of Hebrews reminds us of. That he knew God's exodus was coming for his people. See, the pathway isn't always straight. The plan of God isn't always immediately obvious, but God is with his people. We're told that he is there in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. God is always with his people. He goes on ahead to lead them. And so this meandering pathway then begins to reveal the plan of God. They've not gone directly to the promised land, but they are now here against the Red Sea. But this is where we see God's plan. They are put there. Why? So that Pharaoh will think, oh, this is, I've, I've got a second shot at this. I shouldn't have let them go. I can I can go after them again and bring them back. The, all, that, all that has been lost can, can be reclaimed if, if, if I can just go back and get them. And how hard will it be? It'll be like herding cattle. I just use my armies to bring them back. And so God says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will pursue them. Now, in this rope-a-dope strategy of, of Israel against the Red Sea, it's not as if God is, is twisting Pharaoh's heart toward evil. No, what does Pharaoh most want? Victory. To claim some sense of dignity. And so when we're told that God hardens his heart, it's the same way you would describe that, that God strengthens the resolve of Pharaoh. He's just giving Pharaoh the very thing Pharaoh wanted. The Lord made strong Pharaoh's own desires, that Pharaoh will now, as one commentator says, have the courage to fulfill the desires of his own heart. He is the dope in this scenario. And of course the plan works, because what does Pharaoh do? He sends his elite army, the best chariots. And, and even God's plan of taking the people through on dry land, not soggy, muddy land, but miraculously dry land, well, that's what you need if you're in a chariot. Otherwise, the swampy lands would be the place where, well, we'll use infantry for this, not the chariots. But God's plan is working. But, but, if, but, but the plan brings fear into Israel so that they, they reach the point where they say, it would have been, are there not graves in Egypt? Right, what's the first thing you think of when I tell you Egypt geographically what's the last thing you see on the horizon as you're leaving egypt the giant pyramids which are graves are there no graves in egypt of course there are graves in egypt that's the one place that i know for sure there are graves they're the biggest monuments built until until the the, the 12th century for for thousands of years these were the the largest man-made objects on earth 
Are there no graves in Egypt? Of course there are graves in Egypt. That's where your parents and their parents died enslaved. See, Israel's so frightened that that they see an army coming and a sea behind them and they think, there's no help, there's no hope. These are the people that, that witnessed God miraculously bring them out of Egypt through a series of, of miracles. And so Moses tells them in, in chapter 14, verse 13, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that Yahweh will bring to you today. See, the real plan is to use the sea which Israel feared was the the point of their destruction, to use this water as their deliverance. See, they think it's the water which traps us here. There is no escape, but what does God do? Well, he comes around to protect them. Instead of now leading them, what is he doing? He's put himself between their enemies and their escape. The The very thing that they thought would trap them becomes their path of rescue. This is actually God's plan of victory. And of course, that's the way God works in the New Testament as well. The cross of Jesus, the place of his execution and death, it looks like a defeat for God. Certainly from the perspective of the imperial soldiers there, the guy who's dead on the cross is clearly the loser here. From the perspective of of the religious leaders who sent Jesus to his death. Well, the cross looks like a defeat. Even from the perspective of Satan, who who had conspired, who had brought about this this conspiracy with Judas and had, had led Jesus to the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross looks like a defeat. And yet the very place of defeat in the plan of God is the pathway of salvation. Just as Israel finds their deliverance through the waters, you and I find our salvation in the cross of Christ. It is in the death of Jesus that our sins are forgiven. And then it's in his victory over the grave and his resurrection that you and I see how what looks like initially a defeat is really God's great victory. Because Exodus 13 and 14, the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture not only of the the meandering pathway or the plan of God, but God's very protection of his people. The angel of the Lord who stood between them and the enemies. The fact that the waters here are divided. And even the mention of the the strong east winds turning it into dry land. It's not as if Moses is giving us a natural explanation. No, over and over again, he's giving us, there's there's no other explanation for this except that this is God's rescue. And and you might be looking for for some sort of natural explanation or or really, no, you're, you're past that. You're at the place where, Pastor, the whole time you're talking about this as if it actually happened. None of us believe that, right? That maybe is, is what you're sitting and thinking. This is the kind of, of picture story you read to children, along with the Little Mermaid. Like, it, we, yes, this really happened. And maybe your, your heart's response toward the idea of a miracle doesn't really say anything at all about the historical events which took place. Maybe it just reveals something about your own heart. Do you think, well, I don't believe in miracles because, well, Miracles can't happen. 
then all you're really doing is exposing what you believe. Because, of course, if there is a God, then he could, a, a God of the power of Yahweh, then, of course, he could intervene. And parting the Red Sea, I mean, that's nothing. He makes galaxies. I mean, this is, this is nothing for God. And the lesson we're meant to learn, it, it, it's told to us multiple times so that we won't miss it, is that in all of this, God says, look at verse 4, even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God says, I will gain glory for myself. Once again, Israel is in a place where they can do nothing to bring about their own rescue. They're trapped. But God comes behind them to fight. God leads them through on dry land. And then God has the waters crash down over the Egyptians. The very barrier to their escape becomes their rescue. God, we, it, this, this, this claim that this is for the glory of God to show us his greatness, his power, it's repeated in verse 17. When, when they see the, the army coming, they, they say, well, what am I going to do? God says, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And then God explains in verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I gain glory. And what happens? As the confusion takes place, as the, Israel, as the Egyptian army now finds itself trapped between these walls of water, as they begin to try and flee, what do they say? Well, in verse 25, let's get away from the Israelites. Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. See, this is the kind of battle plan that when it was drawn up, like, what chance of failure is there? An untrained army, an untrained group of people trapped in a location that is perfectly suited for our attack plan. Yeah, maybe Pharaoh will lose a couple of men around the edges, but he's going to bring back the, the enslaved people for himself. And yet the Israelites see that when God steps in, that he is fighting for his people. And then the chapter ends with the response of the Israelites, that they saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his prophet his servant. Can you see the victory? Not just, not just here in Exodus. Can you see it in the cross of Jesus? Can you see it in the path that God is leading you down? Or do you, do you look back at the, the pathway of your life and say, I think we're lost, God. I don't think you know what's going on. If you went to a wedding reception in the middle of the aughts, somewhere around the year 2004, then I can almost guarantee you heard the country pop song, Bless the Broken Road. The songwriters admitted it was a personal love song written from uh, the perspective of a husband to his wife. I set out on a narrow way many years ago, hoping that I would find true love. Some of you, it's, it's going to be stuck in your head all day, and I'm not even singing it. Hoping that I would find true love along the broken road. 
And then the song describes the heartbreaks and mistakes of life when looking for love. But the meandering path, the broken road, was used by God to bring him to his true love. God blessed the broken road that led me straight to you. And so grooms sing to brides on their wedding day, celebrating all that had led them to this moment of true love. Now Israel, Israel has an even better story. Because who was alongside them, leading them down their broken road? God, their rescuer. Who is the one who, who, who protects them when they felt trapped, when they saw the enemy? God never left them. He was there. God gains the victory. The barrier that looks like death has become your path of deliverance. Fear the Lord. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that you reveal to us, that you are the one who gains all of the glory. That you are the God of all power, the one who remains undefeated. That you are the rescuer who saw the, the need of your people. You are the covenant maker who, who remembered your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to his sons. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that when we face the struggles and challenges of life, that we would be able to stand firm by trusting in you, knowing that all that is needed for our salvation has already been done. Jesus, our Savior, died on the cross, and he has been raised from the dead. And so we pray, God, that you would bless the broken road down which we walk, that we would know the depth of your love, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.